0: all right well we are continuing our series in the gospel of john today so if you have your bible please turn with me to john chapter 15 pastor inro concluded with verse 11 last lord's day so we will pick up from there and consider today verses 12 through 17 before we comment on it let's first read it again this is john 15 starting in verse 12 These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. as we gather in your presence today to receive your word. Help us, Father, to internalize this word. May the truth shared transform our lives. And may you grant us wisdom today to apply this word to our daily walk and let your grace and love shine through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this afternoon, we are resuming our discussion from where we left off, and we're delving into the significance of bearing fruit, and more specifically, what it means to abide in Jesus. Jesus here provides us with indicators of those who abide in him, and today, from this text, we're going to highlight three of those. First, someone who abides in Jesus is characterized by obedience to his word. We see this, for example, where we saw it back in verse 10, and we're going to see it again here in verse 14. Secondly, such an individual is not just a follower of Christ, but also a friend. And that's emphasized in verses 14 through 15. And then lastly, verses 16 and following reveal that a person who abides in Jesus does so not as the result of some random occurrence it's not by chance it's not by you exercising your free will but rather it is because you were chosen by christ so to sum it up abiding in jesus involves obedience friendship and being chosen by him well first what does it mean that a person obeys the lord jesus christ again let's look at verse 9 our lord says as the father has loved me so i have loved you abide in my love If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, if you've been paying any attention at all in this series on John, you should be noticing a recurring theme here, particularly the connection between the commandments and love. One might observe a certain repetition, and it might appear that Jesus is reiterating himself. Well, he is. The Lord has consistently communicated this message, suggesting that the repetition is deliberate and suggesting that it's therefore crucial that we grasp this. A brief look back at chapter 14 reinforces this repetitive theme as a point of emphasis. If you recall, back in verse 15 of chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Likewise, in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23 then underscores that love for Jesus is evidenced by keeping his word. It reads, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then verse 24 highlights that failure to keep his word indicates a lack of love for him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the point here, the correlation, is very clear. It's un- unambiguous. A person who genuinely loves Jesus is someone who actively follows his commands. This is not a subjective love. It's not a sentimental form of love. It's not an abstract concept. Rather, Jesus emphasizes that true love for him is revealed through a life that is marked by obedience to his commandments. And it's good that Jesus emphasizes this over and over again. You're probably... You might be thinking right now man. didn't we just hear this sermon a couple weeks ago well folks we need to hear it over and over and over again we desperately need to hear it so many people get this wrong i have good friends who profess to know christ who just simply don't get this i have friends who tell me well we live under grace we don't live under the law it's all about jesus's obedience and what he did for us it's not about our obedience and they say this in such a way that they pit grace against the law, against obedience. But friends, that is a lie. And it ignores the emphasis Jesus places over and over again. In fact, just this past week on Instagram, I saw someone post a video of a guy. He was making this facial expression like like something just dawned on him. And the caption read, progressive Christians when they realize that there are more rules other than love thy neighbor in the Bible. Well, then someone commented, love thy neighbor does not mean to agree or support anyone else, nor to conform to their beliefs. All it means is to not hurt anyone if they are different, excluding when they cause harm. Now, I can somewhat appreciate the initial post. And I can somewhat appreciate that the person responding gets it partially right on the surface. It's true that loving someone doesn't mean that we have to just go along and support whatever they say or do. But there's also some error in what was said. And the original post can be a little misleading. He said that all that loving your neighbor means is to not hurt anyone if they are different. Except when they're trying to harm you. Well, that's a normal, typical definition that you'll hear from Americans especially. You'll even hear it from conservatives and libertarians. This was Ron Paul's big thing he used to say back in the day. But friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, I don't normally engage on Instagram posts, but given that I was studying this very thing this week, I I just couldn't resist. So I just briefly responded. I said, that's not what it means. I said, Love thy neighbor is a summary of the second table of the law, a.k.a. commandments 5 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. I just left it there because I figured either he wasn't going to respond at all or he's going to start arguing with me. But to my surprise, he said, well, what does that mean exactly? I'm curious. I was like, all right. (laughs) So I responded back. And this time I elaborated more because he appeared to be open. So I wrote. The issue I see with your definition is that when you talk about harm, that can be subjective. Just as love has become subjective. For example, is homosexuality harmful? I'd venture to say you ask most people on the street that and they'll say, well, no, it's actually love. Love is love. And yet scripture calls it an abomination. He abhors it. He detests it. God judges against it. He destroyed cities over it. Sounds harmful to me. Likewise, when the Bible talks about love, that means something. To truly love someone is to live out God's moral law towards that person, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. True love, for example, towards your neighbor doesn't commit adultery. It doesn't lie to them. It doesn't steal from them and so on. So the idea of love is not left up to each and every person to decide what they think it means based on their ever-changing emotions. And if that were the case, we'd have absolutely no grounds whatsoever to to combat other perversions, such as bestiality and pedophilia. Rather, love is rooted in God, and it's rooted in his law. It's not rooted in our personal and subjective opinions about what is loving and what's harmful or not we just heard it when jesus was asked which is the great commandment in the law how did he respond you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the first and great commandment the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments hang or depend all the law and the prophets you you catch that on these two commandments that i've just given you love god love your neighbor depend all the law and prophets in other words the law is summed up in the two commands love god and love your neighbor so what does love look like it's the law that tells you what it looks like how it behaves how it acts paul says it this way in romans 13 Kind of sounds like our friend on Instagram, is it? Well, love doesn't harm others. And that's why I said he kind of partially gets it correct. problem here, though, is what is the wrong here grounded in? How is wrong defined? Is it based on what you think is wrong? Absolutely not. Wrong here is defined by God's moral law. Paul, here in context, is quoting some of the Ten Commandments. And so, therefore, Paul goes on to say, therefore, love is the fulfilling of what? It's the fulfilling of the law. So you see, and I'm continuing on with my, my comment on Instagram. I told you it was going to be a little bit longer. Love is not left for us to decide what it is and what it looks like. It's the law of God that tells us what it is and what it looks like. And what these progressive Christians, quote, unquote, and I said, that's an oxymoron, don't get is that they have stripped the word love in scripture from the law of scripture and yet that's the very thing that shapes and defines true love for us so you want to love your neighbor then obey god's moral law towards your neighbor and again to my surprise he responded so loving thy neighbor is to follow the law of the commandments with and for them to which i then replied yes That's what love looks like. Do those things God has commanded you to do towards your neighbor. And stay away from those things he has commanded you not to do towards your neighbor. And so you can think of love God and love neighbor as chapter headings. And what fills those chapters, the content, is the moral law of God. Or to borrow the language of the original post, Those more rules that you read about in the Bible other than love your neighbor is actually what helps explain to you, informs you what it means to love your neighbor and to love God. That's how it looks. That's how it operates. And then I just kind of threw in, just to kind of bait him a little bit. Likewise, the Ten Commandments themselves are a summary of the moral law. They're not an exhaustive treatment, but he hasn't hasn't gotten back to me yet. So hopefully he's chewing on it. And I hope you're getting the point as well. You see, anyone can come along and say, well, I love Jesus. Millions of people do it. People do it all the time. But what do you mean by that? Oftentimes you'll get some sentimental, feel-good, mushy-mushy stuff that almost always has nothing to do with obedience and keeping God's commands. And yet Jesus emphasizes here that if there is no outward manifestation of holiness, if there's no observable obedience to the commands he has given, then something is wrong. Something is off. In essence, a person who fails to exhibit external evidence of following his commands is not truly demonstrating love for Jesus. As Jesus put it, if anyone loves me, they will keep my word. And so the question Jesus would ask you today is, do you have genuine love for me? And the response we are called to provide involves first looking to Jesus first and then assessing our lives. What is the fruit that's produced by our lives? In what direction are our lives going? Where are we heading? What principles guide your choices every day In, in all of life? The straightforward indicator of someone's love for Jesus is that they remain focused on Him and they observe His teachings and His commands. Obedience is crucial. And when obedience falters, we then should be seeing repentance. And in faith, a return to aligning with the will of God in your lives. Well, turning our attention back to chapter 15, now notice that there is a specific commandment highlighted verse 12 states this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you and so not only is there a love for christ but in essence our love for jesus should manifest as love for one another jesus here is essentially stating that he desires a people he desires a church that's marked by love not only for him but also for each other. And he makes it clear that the world will recognize the genuineness of our witness by our love for one another. In other words, the indicator of a church's love for him is found in their love for each other. But I want you to notice something else here. Notice that Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. And then couple this with what he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. It's very important that we read verse 14 in light of verse 12. And the reason I say that is because a person could read verse 14 alone and greatly misunderstand what Jesus is saying. If you read verse 14 alone, it sounds as if possibly that Jesus is saying that the first cause in this relationship between you and him is your obedience. That is, if you will begin the process of doing what I command you, then the effect is that I will in turn love you and then you will be my friend and then to extend it out even further then the death that I died on the cross then becomes effectual for you. Beloved, that is not what Jesus is saying. That is heresy. And sadly, many who downplay the importance of obedience do so because they think that's what we're saying, but that's not what we're saying. There are two ways you can understand an if condition. First, there exists a type of condition where a cause precedes and triggers an effect. If that were the case here in this text, it would suggest then that if you precede the act of him laying down his life for you or becoming a friend with obedience by following his commands, then the consequence would be becoming a friend. The ultimate effect would be his act of laying down his life for you, and so that represents one way of understanding this if statement. But now consider the other type of condition. That is an effect that ensues and affirms a cause. So, to give an illustration of this, in case that just kind of went over your head a little bit, consider this statement. If you are an MDiv graduate from an accredited Reformed Seminary, we will hire you. Alright, in this scenario, being an MDiv graduate from an accredited Reformed Seminary is the cause that precedes and results in the church wanting to hire you. You see the relationship? This is an example where it cause, precedes and triggers an effect. Now, to exemplify the second way of understanding a condition, consider this statement. If your white blood cell count is low, then you are in remission. Now, in this case, the effect, which is the low white blood cell count, follows remission and serves as a confirmation that you are in remission, substantiating the cause of the white blood cell count being low. This is an example of an effect that ensues and affirms a cause. So now the question then is, what type of condition do we have here in John 15? Is Jesus saying that if you do what I command, then you will, be, then you will qualify as my friend? And then because you qualify as my friend, my death will become effectual for you. Is that what he's saying here? Absolutely not. And our, actually our antinomian friends would be right to reject that, if that's what we were in fact saying, if that's what we meant by emphasizing obedience. But that's not what we mean. And that's not what Jesus here means. Again, you have to read verse 14 in context. Rather, what Jesus is saying here is that by obeying him, you affirm your status as his friend. Acknowledging that his act of self-sacrifice has truly redeemed, acquired, and transformed you. Thus, your obedience stems from the cause of his laying down his life for you. And your obedience serves as confirmation that you belong among those friends for whom he has died. You see, it's not a matter of striving through obedience to ascend into heaven or to earn one's way into God's heart so that you can receive God's love. Instead, love originates in the heart of God, and then it descends down to us. It always follows in that direction, moving from heaven to earth. That's why it's so important to read verse 14 in light of verse 12. Love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. The love that God extends to Christians transforms into the love shared among Christians. It's the kind of love that distinguishes disciples of Christ, as noted in the saying, they will recognize you as my followers by the love you have for one another. And why is it that Christians exhibit love among themselves? The reason lies in being first loved by Christ and then being called to this duty. This orientation is consistent with what is emphasized in verse 10 when we consider why we should keep Christ's commandments and abide in His love. The straightforward answer found there in verse 10 is that Christ Himself kept His Father's commandments and remained in His Father's love. Jesus isn't instructing His people to do something from which He exempts Himself, He's setting For us an example urging us to follow in his footsteps the motivation for keeping the commandments is rooted in love and just as jesus keep kept his father's commandments because he is loved he steadfastly abides in his father's love maintaining his this connection from his early years all the way to the point of death His commitment to staying within his Father's love remained unwavering, even when it meant shedding his own blood on the cross. The warning and threat that stands against all of us is clear. The soul that sins shall surely die. However, the essence of the gospel lies not in your obedience, not in your sincerity, or your love for Jesus or love for others. Instead, it centers on the gospel of God's love which serves as your sole source of hope. This love embedded in the unfathomable riches of God's grace was a love that embraced you. And the love that Jesus abided in was God's love for you. And this love declared, I will bear the payment. I will bear the consequences because you love them, Father, and so do I. It was out of love that God placed the debt of your sin upon Jesus. And this is what serves as the foundational basis for our love. And it's not it's it's crucial that we not overlook this as we might veer into legalism or lose our sense of direction. In verse 13, Jesus emphasizes, greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, if we think about the nature of the love that Jesus desires, we observe that in verse 13, Jesus doesn't instruct us to be introspective and to consider our own capabilities to then act accordingly. Our focus is not meant to be inward, but outward. He's directing us to look to Christ first at his sacrificial act. That's the emphasis in verse 13. There is no greater expression, no deeper act And no firmer foundation than his willingness to lay down his life for us. Now, the practical application of this commandment is not easy. It's not convenient. It's not comfortable. Loving one another in this manner, which is the highest form of love, that is being willing to sacrifice your own life for another Christian, certainly not a simple task. And it also involves all the lesser instances of love, extending love to its utmost limit. It's natural to question whether we could even live up to such a demand, and rightly so. And the truth is, on your own, you can't, and you won't. However, it is Christ working within you and through you that enables you to fulfill this command. So, just practically speaking, what do we do when we encounter difficulties with each other? When we face those moments of tension with one another? And we struggle to embody the love that God has demonstrated through Christ. We can find it challenging to love our fellow members of the family of God. Probably find it very challenging to love me at times. So, what steps should we take? Well, I suggest the first step is to preach to yourself. I heard John Piper say that years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself of the truth that God didn't look through the corridors of time and found you exceptionally loving and then decided to love you. The reality is none of us is more lovable than any other. God loved you in spite of your flaws. And so can we then not extend that same love to others despite their imperfections? God loves his children profoundly, sacrificing his son for their sins. So you're telling me we can't make sacrifices? Secondly, ask God to grant you the heart to see others as people who are loved by God. Consider this. If God, whom you love and are united to, the one who matters most to you declares, I love this person. How can you treat that person poorly? Can you treat them poorly? The answer is obviously no. And so we must view one another through the lens of the gospel. This obedience will only thrive when the perfect obedience of Christ serves as our guide. And so in prayer, say, Lord, since you have given me your love, please also give me your love with this person. Well, then moving on, we we then read in verse 14 that you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You know, it's interesting to know that in the Old Testament, there are only two people who are referred to as friends of God. First, Isaiah 41, eight mentions, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then in Exodus 33.11, we read, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Remarkably, among the 39 books that make up two-thirds of our Bible, or more, no one else is bestowed with the title of a friend of God. And as we enter the New Testament, God the Son takes on our human form, our nature, and he addresses his followers as friends. So this leads me, at least, to reflect on, well, what is it that distinguished Abraham and Moses as friends of God? Well, I think the most obvious and simple answer is, wasn't it true that they believed God's word and strove to follow his commands? Now, their obedience wasn't flawless. The Bible provides numerous examples of their faults in obeying the Lord as he deserves. Nevertheless, we can affirm that Abraham, for example, upon hearing the word of God, believed God and obeyed. And journey to the promised land likewise moses even after he grappled with some uncertainties and doubts of his own he ultimately ultimately placed his trust in the lord and not in his eloquence or his power and he obeyed he led israel out of egypt both abraham and moses believed god's word and they earnestly aimed to live in accordance with that word well jesus declares you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, we've already addressed one way of torturing this verse, which is to make our obedience the cause of God loving us. But there's also another way that you can flip this verse on its head. Instead of gratefully acknowledging God for the incredible gift of friendship, a sinful heart that's resistant to the Lord may say, you will be my friend, God, if you do what I say. What I tell you to do however when we reflect on what God did for his friends such as Abraham and Moses this tells quite a different story notice here that Jesus associates friendship with the proclamation of the word here in John 15 just like God repeatedly revealed his word to Abraham and Moses and contrary to the notion that a servant doesn't comprehend his master's actions God treated them as friends, from calling Abraham to Canaan and to summoning Moses to lead Israel to Canaan. Friends engage in conversation. And throughout the Old Testament, we witness Abraham and Moses talking with the Lord, receiving his guidance. God even confides in his angels, saying to Abraham, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Here, Jesus emerges as the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, unveiling the very mind of God for us in the word. And this revelation helps us grasp God's mercy in our lives and his plan for our future with him in glory. You know, in the New Testament, it's also interesting. If you search, you won't find where the apostles address the church as friends of God. They consistently depict a different relationship for example second peter 1 1 begins simon peter a servant an apostle of jesus christ in james 1 james introduced himself as james a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ in revelation john writes the revelation of jesus christ which god gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john Likewise, Paul in Philippians 1 identifies as Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ. This designation emphasizes the duty of investing ourselves in pleasing the Master, doing the Master's will. However, Jesus here introduces a new understanding for us. It's not a contradictory understanding, but it complements it. It's emphasizing a different aspect to this. While Paul calls us servants and emphasizes the duty aspect, Jesus reveals A deeper relationship we are called sons which signifies a father's tender love shielding us from evil and caring for us and giving us good gifts recall that it was the son who received the inheritance and we are called sons of God and now Jesus takes this even further declaring us his friends a friend is kind true present in times of need A friend is someone who's willing to speak the truth to you, even when you don't want to hear it. Well, finally then, concluding on the honor of being a friend of Christ, we we come lastly now to emphasize that this status doesn't result from your good choices. It's entirely a matter of grace, which kind of ties us back to the first point we made. Someone who abides in Christ and is considered a friend of Christ is someone who was chosen by Christ. We see this in verse 16 and following. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, here there's some debate. You read the commentaries. Um, Is this strictly said to disciples and them alone? Does it have any application to us? I think there's two two levels of understanding here. I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. On the one hand, it's true that Jesus is addressing his disciples, those we encountered in the Gospels. Jesus calls them saying, follow me. And we see individuals like Matthew leaving the tax collector booth to follow Jesus. This is a clear aspect of jesus calling his disciples to follow him however it's important to note that everything mentioned before and after applies not only to these disciples but it extends to others as well as their witnesses meant for others to join in their experience john calvin writes true the subject now in hand is not the ordinary election of believers by which they are adopted to be the children of god but that special election by which he set apart his disciples to the office of preaching the gospel. But if it was by free, but if it was by free gift and not by their own merit, that they were chosen to the apostolic office, much more is it certain that the election by which, from being the children of wrath, and in the cursed seed, we become the children of God, is a free grace. Besides, in the passage, Christ magnifies his grace, by which they had been chosen to be apostles, so as to join with that with it that former election by which they have been engrafted into the body of christ or rather he includes in these words all the dignity and honor which he had conferred on them yet i acknowledge that christ treats expressly of the apostleship for his design is to excite the disciples to execute their office diligently and faithfully quote so in other words the concept of god's effectual call is embedded here in Jesus' words when he says You did not choose me, but I chose you. And this truth can be applied to all Christians. Nobody becomes a Christian one day. They just wake up as an absolute pagan worshiper of nobody and just decides, I'm going to follow Jesus today and obey Jesus. Rather, the fundamental reason anyone turns to the Lord is because it is Christ who first reaches out to them through his loving choice. Just as no apostle followed Jesus without being called, in the same way, no Christian embraces Jesus savingly without experiencing his sovereign and saving call rooted in God's eternal choice. And so if you find yourself in Christ, it's because God has drawn you to himself. We've seen this multiple times in this gospel already. Recall back in chapter 6, he said, all that the Father gives me, Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And then Jesus answered him, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, your belief in Christ is a response to his word reaching you with saving power, calling you to faith. Your love for Christ originates in his prior love and the calling into his love. Christ's sacrifice for you is a result of his father's choice. And while you may contemplate the fluctuating nature of your choices and occasional regrets, the Lord doesn't experience regret or change his mind. As Numbers twenty-three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. So considering your obedience, Failures and shortcomings, Jesus affirms that he has come, responding to the Father's call to obey his commandments. And even when you doubt the pleasing nature of your fruit, Jesus encourages abiding in him, assuring that in doing so, you will produce fruit that pleases God. And acknowledging your compromises and your struggles to lay down your will, Jesus points to his own act of laying down his life for you. And if you admit to not being entirely a faithful friend, Jesus reminds you that you you are called precisely because you're his friend. All of these obligations, duties, and commandments are unattainable without grace. But then lastly, that grace doesn't just secure us as individuals and disconnect us from everyone else it isn't just me and jesus the essence of this grace as we see here in john 15 is to enable us to observe those who are attached to the same spiritual vine that we are and to say jesus it's incredible that you would call someone like me to love people like them so lord empower me make me faithful in the friendship that you have caused And so we see here in summary that a person abiding in Jesus is marked by obedience to his commands. That such a person transcends becoming just a mere follower of Christ to becoming a friend of Christ. And lastly, this relationship is not some random thing that happened by chance, but was the direct result of being chosen by God. And I hope these truths will help guide you in how you should view and treat your fellow brothers and sisters. Let's pray.